Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Uh, all three of the first three Gospels, uh, in pretty much in this same way, tells us a story about Jesus uh, coming to Jerusalem, you know, leading up to the week that we celebrate Easter, right? But coming up to the week of his death, resurrection. He's coming there and the people begin to celebrate without even realizing in the fulfillment of prophecy that's going on. But so he he's, tops the hill, the Mount of Olives, on a donkey. And, you know, remember the hosannas and all that that's going on. And this is in fulfillment of a prophecy that's probably over 500 years old to the day. And, uh, but that's not what's surprising. And as he tops that hill, and, and the Mount of Olives, on top of the hill you can see down across and you can see Jerusalem. And right in front of him would have been the temple, because the temple is on that side of Jerusalem. So you can see the temple where the people of God come to worship God. And he tops the hill there, and it says as he does that, he is overcome with emotion. And he weeps over Jerusalem because he knows the spiritual condition of the people of God at that time. And he knows what lies ahead for Jerusalem in the years to come. But the fact that he weeps over Jerusalem is is not surprising. So he comes on down the hill and enters into the city and goes into the temple area. And inside the temple area, he sees what's going on and what's happening is, you know, people had come for the Passover feast from all over the world and they don't bring animals with them, but they, they need an animal to offer as a sacrifice to God. And so they were selling animals there in the temple for people to buy and to sacrifice. But, you know, they were gouging, price gouging, because these people were at the mercy of them because they needed to sacrifice and they got to pay whatever they have to pay. And then they had come up with a rule that said you couldn't offer money in the temple if it wasn't Jewish money. And it was Roman money, uh, Roman gold or silver or some other country gold or silver. No, you couldn't offer that. You could only offer Jewish money. And so you had to change your money. And guess what they do when you change your money? They charge you, Right. And so they, you know, they're making a killing off changing the money for the people. And undoubtedly, the religious leaders who decide who gets to be there are taking a cut. All right. So Jesus comes in and he sees all of this. And this is where he surprises us. Because he begins just throwing everybody out of the temple. He drives them out and they, he lets the livestock out and drives them out of the temple and he, he turns over the tables with the money on it and you know, coins going everywhere. And it's like this, it's like chaos is what it feels like, right? And what's going on? And I don't know if he was saying anything, uh, but so he is turning everything. Now, this isn't the Jesus that we normally think of, right? Um, and so he, he does this, and then he stops and looks around. And I bet it was quiet. Everybody's just looking at Jesus, what's going to go on? 
And he explains the basis for his anger. That, you know, this, this temple was supposed to be a place of, you know, of spiritual things, spiritual truths. Those sacrifices were intended to be spiritual. And the giving was, you know, a, 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 an issue of heart, not of, you know, which coin it was that you were giving. And he says, you guys have turned this into a place to steal money from people. You know, these, you're taking advantage of these people who are trying to come and worship God. And then he, he goes back and he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, words written some 700 years before when, when Isaiah was talking about his temple. God, excuse me, Isaiah is actually recording the words of God as God talks about his temple. And God talks about his temple this way. He describes it as my house, my, my house of prayer. And a little later in the verse, he says that my house shall be called house of prayer for all nations. How far had they strayed from God's intentions for his temple? And it's interesting to me, first, God says, my house. We get that, and we'll talk a little more about that. Uh, you know, a place where God's going to manifest his presence on earth. Um, but he says here, it's not just for my people. My temple is for the rest of the world, too. So some 700 years before Christ, he's already talking about this idea that, that, you know, a relationship with me and being part of, you know, being in my temple and worshiping me is for everybody. And it's a precursor to this idea of us taking the gospel to where? Go and make disciples of where? All the nations. And so let me just take a moment here, just... Uh, it's kind of like a parenthesis here, okay? This is a parenthesis in the sermon. And just say to you today that if you are here today and you've never entered into a personal relationship with Christ by receiving Jesus as Savior, let me explain to you what that means. Those of you who are watching, the Bible is very clear and we know it in our own experience that we have all sinned. We've all done things that we know we ought not do. We've all not done things we knew we should do. And sometimes we've done the right things for the wrong reasons, right? We know this. We've all failed. We've all failed to love God with all of our being. You know, we've all failed to really love each other the way that we ought to. And so we haven't measured up to God's standards for us. And the Bible is very clear that when we are in that condition, that we can't have a relationship with him, that our sins have separated us from him. And if we die in that condition, we'll be separated from him forever in a place called hell. But the good news, the gospel, is that God loved us so much that God himself, the son of God, becomes a human being and lives a perfect and sinless life. And then he goes to the cross and as he dies on the cross, God the Father took all of my sins, every one that he knew I would ever commit, and he placed the guilt for that on Jesus as he dies there. And not just mine, though that was plenty. Yours too. And yours. And he dies there paying the penalty for that. And as he does that, he removes everything. God removes everything on all the obstacles on his side of this 
relationship. And then he offers to us, he says, if you will believe this, if you will believe, acknowledge that you've sinned against me, and you'll believe that Jesus is my son, who, you know, the Bible says he is, that he did die for your sins and rise again, you can place your faith in him as Savior. And the moment you do that, just... The moment you say, yes, God, I believe that. I I do receive that for me. That very moment, every sin is forgiven. It's, It's been paid for. Every sin you have or ever will commit, paid for. When this life is over, you go on living with the Lord in heaven. And God himself moves inside. He moves into you. And he makes you new deep down inside. And he begins changing, working that outward into your life in, in amazing and good ways. And so if you haven't received Christ as Savior, if you've never once and for all settled that decision, I encourage you to do it right now. Just say, yes, God, what he's talking about, I, I want that, I believe that, I accept that, okay? And we'd love to talk to you about that if you have questions, okay? All right, we're back out of the parentheses. Jesus quotes Isaiah, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. In fact, my house shall be called, shall be known as a house of prayer for all nations, for everyone, everywhere. Now, forty years later, thirty-five, forty years later, that temple is completely destroyed. Because at the time when the the religious leaders of Israel reject Jesus and the official position of Israel is that we don't accept that Jesus is the Messiah, all that kind of stuff, God does something different. And he leaves them behind there, okay? And it's destroyed, so that temple is gone. But we learn something. The Apostle Paul teaches something about this, this temple. And in his first letter to the Corinthians, he says this. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, typically, if you've been around Christian churches, Bible preaching Christian churches, you know you have this sense, okay, yes, the moment, as I said, when you receive Jesus, what happens? God moves in, you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is true, and that's referenced elsewhere in the Bible. But what I want you to understand something here is when he says this here, for, for you are the temple of God, there's something that we don't see in English. You know, sometimes you're trying to translate from one language to the other. It's, it's kind of hard to communicate always everything you want to. But what's interesting is that Old English, the kind of English that was used in the King James Version, had a way to try to capture this. And, and here's what I want to show you. We're going to swap a couple words out here, okay? So let's swap the words out. Do ye not know that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, I don't know if that means anything to you. Ye, ye. It's the plural form of the word you. So I, if I were going to talk today, I'd say you. If I want to talk to all of you, I'd say ye. Now, this isn't about Old English. It's about what the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write. And when he says you are the temple, he means you, all of you together. You, the church. You, the family of God. You are now the temple of God. We actually talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the importance of the people of God. You remember in Ephesians chapter 2, it says this. 
Go ahead and put it up there if you would. He says oh, that you're a holy temple in the Lord. You are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. That somehow, yes, God lives in me and God lives in you. But there is a sense somehow, rather, that we as the church, that God lives in us. That's, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? That yes, he lives in me and yes, he lives in you. But somehow, rather, we as the church, there's a, something else going on. There's a sort of bigger, I would say, that God is indwelling the church. We are the temple of God. And so I would say to you today, though not spoken directly to us, Isaiah chapter 56 has application to us as the temple of God, as the church, that we are his house of prayer, that he wants us to be known, to be called his house of prayer for all nations. And I just think about this, that we are... Okay, we are a house of prayer. We can become known. And, and so let's think about this in our communities here, right? Okay, yeah, they pray. Well, that church, they pray. Yeah, they pray. You go to that service, they pray. But we want it to, to I think if we're going to capture the spirit, this is bigger than that. What we, they begin to understand is, is they pray for us. Right? It isn't just for us here. It's for them everywhere. Okay. Now, when the disciples were with Jesus for that three years, Jesus often spoke about praying. He gave them an example of praying, and he talked about praying. Uh, some 58 times in the first three Gospels, he talks about praying, or as his example is given of his praying. And uh, that's almost once per chapter on average. So prayer is a significant part of what Jesus taught his disciples. And that when Jesus leaves the earth, leaves them behind as the church, when the church was young, apparently they got it. <laughs> All right? They got this idea of being a house of prayer, being the temple of God, being a praying people, praying together. And I'm not talking today about personal prayer. And personal prayers is a great subject, and sometime we ought to focus on that again, too. But I think sometimes prayer is something that we just so kind of get goofed up in our minds about what it is and how it works. It depends, especially depends how you grew up, right? Any of you grow up with the admonition, make sure that you say your prayers. Anybody? Okay, yeah. And so somebody, well, wait, some sort of thing that we say, you know, no, it's not like that. And we're going to see the example of how the, the church, when it was young, got it. Now, I don't know how easy it was for them. I don't know. I mean, I would guess that the flesh worked against them like it does against us. But there is something really significant about what we see in the church when it was young. So let's take our Bibles and go to the book of Acts. We're going to use the Bible that's there in the, the chairs. We're going to start on page 1252. And we'll just go from there. We're going to be just in the book of Acts here for a little while. All right, so Jesus has died. He's risen again. He has uh, made appearances for 40 days. And he's told the disciples, okay, the Holy Spirit is coming. 
he's going to empower you to be witnesses to me around the world, here and around the world. And um, now I want you to just go back to Jerusalem and wait. Okay. What are we supposed to do? He tells them to go back to Jerusalem and wait, and so they do. But what do we see them doing? In chapter 1, in verse 14, here's what they did. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Supplication is like specific requests in prayer. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, all of them. Verse before, it talks about the disciples, and we see that there are 120 of them here meeting. But when they weren't sure what to do, what did they do? I'm asking. Yes. Somebody besides Jamie knows that answer. (laughs) They prayed. When they didn't know what to do, they prayed together. Okay. Look a little farther down the chapter. They have more what they don't know what to do. Because there were 12 of them, and they think somehow the 12 is probably important. Jesus called 12 of us, and then Judas, you know, was a traitor. And now there's only 11 of us, and 12 was kind of a significant number to Jewish people. 12 tribes and all that kind of thing. Anyway, so we get down to verse 23. They, trying, they, they said, well, we've got to replace somebody, and so here's the qualifications. They need to have been around since John's baptism to the resurrection, all this. And so they come up with two names, verse 23. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. Well, which one is it? Which one? We don't know. What do we do? Want to take a guess? We pray. Verse 25. Oh, no, verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, whether they were casting, like using a short stick, long stick, to do this, we don't know. Or if they were voting, we don't know. But it doesn't matter. They said, God, we don't know which of these two. You do. We're laying this out before you. Here we go. Boom. And they, you know, believe that God had given them their answer because they prayed. They asked God together about this. All right. So they're waiting there. The Holy Spirit does come. It it comes on the church in fullness and power. The body is now indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Peter preaches. Uh, 3,000 plus people get saved. What do they do? Let's look in verse 41 of chapter 2. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. That day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they, all these people who got saved, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So they continued steadfastly in the teaching. Man, there's so much we need to know. The apostles are teaching and it's being passed on directly from the apostles and then from those who learn to others. They continued steadfastly in fellowship. You know, a few couple weeks ago, like I said, we talked about this value and this importance of us being together and spending time together. And they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. And I think this probably includes a couple things. One is it includes they were eating together. They were sharing meals together. And then most likely they were also partaking of the Lord's Supper, at least often in that situation. 
And they continued steadfastly, what? In prayers. And so the question here, you know, oh, you've become a follower of Christ. What do followers of Christ do? <laughs> well, we, we learn the teaching. We spend time together. We, we you know, fellowship over meals. We particular supper. And we pray together. In other words, it's just, it's a normal part of the Christian life. You know, we... You could go to, you know, most churches across the country today and you'd go in and at some point they're going to pray, right? At some point they're going to pray. And some of those prayers are, are more like us where we're kind of free form and just talk with God and others might be more ritual. They, you know, say what we would call the Lord's Prayer or if you grew up in the Catholic Church, Our Father, right? You know, they have those kinds of things. Every place of faith. But... We tend to think it's exceptional when a church really prays, right? Oh, that is a praying church. And it seems to us like that is the exception rather than the norm. But I want to say to you, when the, when the church was young, it was the norm, not the exception. It was just a normal part of what they did, okay? All right, so let's continue. Let's go over to chapter four. Now in chapter four, you know, the, the religious leaders are really unhappy with the Christians and with their leaders, and they've taken Peter and John, and, and they, you know, challenge them, you can't be preaching this message, and uh, they threatened them, and they had the power to really do serious physical harm to them, possibly to have them killed. And so they threatened them severely, it says. So let's look in verse 23, what happens. And being let go... They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God. And they go on and continue praying about God and his sovereignty and his power and what he's doing. But what do they do? Here they are. They are, are, are being persecuted. And in the face of persecution, what do they do? They pray in the faith. You know, these people were heroes of the faith, we would call them that. But do you think they still might get afraid? Might you be afraid? Listen, we know that because the Apostle Paul elsewhere talks about, hey, uh, pray for me that I'll speak up like I'm supposed to speak up. And so this is what they're doing here. In the face of persecution, in the face of fear, they pray. And then verse number 29, they say, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants, all of us, grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. God, in the face of this persecution, in the face of our fears, we are asking you to give us boldness, make us bold, that we can speak the truth for you. So when they were fearful, when they were persecuted, they prayed together about that. Okay? Go over to chapter 12. Now King Herod had James, the apostle James, killed. He was kind of like leading the early church here, and he had him killed. And he saw that that made the Jewish leaders, leaders really happy that he killed James. And so he said, oh, this is good. I'll do this again. And he takes Peter. He has Peter taken captive and put in jail, and he plans to bring them out on the Jewish Passover and have him killed. Wow. 
Verse number five of chapter 12. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. So this is an emergency situation, isn't it? Wouldn't you say it's an emergency Hey, here's the deal. I hope that if they come and arrest me and plan to kill me that you guys might pray for me. <laughs> I mean, it's God's business whether or not he lets me live, right? But I hope you pray for me. But see, they gathered, and it says they they were constant in prayer. This word constant is an interesting word in the the Greek language this is translated from, the language that the Spirit inspired uh, Luke to write in. And um, it means, the idea of constant also sometimes means intensity or being really fervent. But literally, it means this, expanding to fill up the room that's available to it. In other words, so when they're praying constantly, they're what, praying the whole time that they have available to them. So it's an ongoing prayer by them here. They're filling up the whole time. But they're also filling up their emotions, all, of, all the emotions that they have available to bring to it, all of the intensity they have to bring to it. So it's, it's, it's using all of it. So they were serious about this, weren't they? And I don't know if they, you know, I think they probably thought that Peter was going to be killed based on how they end up responding and not responding. But look over in verse number 12, when Peter gets out, because God does miraculously deliver Peter. He brings him out in the middle of the night, out of the jail, and he goes and finds him, verse 12. So when he had considered this, that, wow, he's, I'm alive. <laughs> he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Okay, so... In emergency situations, seemingly impossible situations, the church got together and prayed. All right. Now, in chapter 13, this is some 300 miles away from what's happening in Jerusalem. In, in, in the city of Antioch, uh, there are religious leaders, not religious, excuse me, the teachers of the church, the leaders of the church are also praying. Let's look at this, chapter 13, verse 1. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who we will know as Paul, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. That word, minister to the Lord, is an interesting word. It's trying to figure out what's going on here, minister to the Lord. And, and really what it seems to include is, is the religious, I hate to even use that word, um, Back in Acts chapter 6, the apostles said, we need to give ourselves to the word and to prayer, seeking God about, you know, him working. We need to be praying about what's going on. We need to be praying about his word and what do we need to hear and what is God saying to us from his word. That's what he's talking about here. This is what they're doing, okay? They're ministering to the Lord. They're fasting, so they're praying too. It says, the Holy Spirit said... Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed some more. Some more is in Walt's paraphrase. Then having fasted and prayed some more, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. So what do we see here? We see that, and this isn't the whole church, but this is the leaders of the church, it's part of the church. They are seeking the Lord's direction. Where do you want us to do? What do you want us to, you know, go? How how do you want us to do this? And the Spirit somehow makes very clear to them, I want you to send Saul and Barnabas out. And so God shows them through their time with prayer. God answers their prayer, and then they pray as they send people out. And, and so we ought to do the same, right? We should be praying for those we might send out. And we'll be talking more about that in the weeks to come. All right, go over to chapter 20. 
Paul has turned a corner at this point in his ministry. He's headed back to Jerusalem, and he knows that when he goes to Jerusalem, most likely he's going to be taken into captivity. He's going to be put in jail. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He believes that God is somehow rather going to get him to Rome through all of this. But so he's, he's done with his regular missionary journey work. And he calls for the elders at the church of Ephesus, and they come and meet him. And he talks to them. He warns them about what's going to happen uh, in the church, how the enemy is going to work against that. He, he tells them, here are things that you really need to pay attention to and your responsibilities. But when all is said and done, they get down to the end. Verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. But so something is coming to an end, isn't it? A relationship that they had had with him, the things that Paul was doing in and around them and with them was coming to an end. And as that was coming to an end, they prayed. But as that was coming to an end, what was happening? Something else was beginning. And so the church prayed at the end of things and at the beginning of things. Just a little while later, he, he gets on the boat and he does his travels and he comes to a place where they stop in the city of Tyre. And, and it says that, uh, let's see, verse 4 and five of chapter 21. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. Okay, verse 5. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore, and what did we do? We prayed. Things are ending, things are beginning, we pray at the beginning of things, we pray at the end of things, and at the beginning of things, and at the end of things. Um, somehow or other, when the church was young, they got it. Being a house of prayer was in their spiritual DNA. And I would say to you, it's in ours too. But you know, it's easy to forget, isn't it? Do we typically begin our meetings and worship with prayer? Yes, I mean, we sing a song, but we pray, right? We have prayer in the beginning. Do we have prayer at the end? Do we? You said, I don't know. (laughs) Well, that made a big impression, didn't it? And we do it on purpose, but what we want to get to is to make sure that it doesn't just become one of those things that we do. We say our prayers. At the beginning of something, we say, we want to see this change. So what does this mean for us then today as the church? Well, we need to regain some of our youthfulness, don't you think? All right, Sergey, I need you to jump forward to a couple slides to that question. What is the number one thing that binds us together as Jesus' church? 
You know, I think we could think about it, you know, we could say, okay, well, it's what we believe, right? We have this shared belief, and we do have shared beliefs, don't we? But it's not that. A club down the street can have shared beliefs, right? Well, it's, it's, it's the, the Christian things we do. It's how, it's how we worship together. We come together and we worship, and, and I'd say, no, that's, that's not really it either. Um... Well, maybe it's the mission that we have. It's the mission that binds us together. Well, we have a shared mission, definitely. We need to be on it. But I say to you that that's not really it either. It's not even the fact that we've all been saved by the same way, right? We've all come to, if, you've, if you know Christ as Savior, if you've made that decision like I talked about, and if you haven't, you need to. But if you, we've made this, we all have that shared experience, right? And it's a good, a shared a salvation experience. But that's not it either, because that salvation experience is what actually opens up the door to what really binds us together as the church. And, and it isn't love, although we ought to love. And we love because of this. But what binds us together is this. It's our shared relationship with Jesus. Jesus is in me, Jesus is in you, Jesus is in us. Without Jesus, all the rest of the stuff is what? Meaningless. But it's with Jesus, this relationship that we have, that all that other stuff becomes meaningful. It's, it's because of our relationship with Jesus that we have all that stuff that we share together. All right, so what is the the very best way that we express that we have this shared relationship with Jesus. I would say to you that it is in prayer. Okay? That praying together is the best expression of our shared relationship with Christ. Now think about this. If Jesus, first of all, is Jesus here today? Yes. How do you know? You know, the Spirit, yes, but you know because the Word of God says so, right? Yeah. And it is true. If the Word says it is true, He is definitely here to us today. But what if He were here like He was with the disciples in person? If He was here in person, you could see Him, you could hear Him with your ears, you could touch Him, you know, you could say something to Him and hear His voice back. All the kind. Do, would we come into church and go, oh, hey, Jesus? No, we would what? We would be gathered together with each other, but more importantly, gathered together with him, right? He is here. Let's, let's talk to Jesus. Let's ask him our questions. Let's listen to what he says to us. Let's interact with Jesus. Well, see, this is the, the fact that, well, let me just go to the, answer the question. So, number one. When we pray together, we're interacting with Jesus, who is a real, living, personal being. This is going to, one of those things about prayer. It's easy to start thinking it's, it's some kind of fuzzy thing, right? We're talking to some spirit in the sky thing, and we're saying words out in there somewhere, and yeah, God hears us. What's... No, no, I was just we're talking to a real person. We talk to his Father in his name, right? And the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. I mean, we're talking to our Lord. He's real. He's alive. He is just as real and just as alive as he was before he left the earth for the last time. 
His disciples listened to him and talked to him. Jesus said, okay, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait. The Holy Spirit's coming. He's going to empower you to be witnesses all the way around the world. See you later. Up he goes. He's just as real as he was to them before he left. He's just as real. And think about them. The, the, the disciples, is in that, when the church was young, and they are talking with Jesus, do they think of some, whoa, some spirit thing up there in the sky? No, who do they think they're talking to? The Lord. He's just not here, he's there. Okay. All right, so when we pray together, we're interacting with Jesus, who is a real, living, personal being. Number two, praying together expresses the reality of our relationship with him. We really do have a relationship with him. We really do. Aren't you glad? What good news is that? We actually have a relationship with Jesus, and the rest of the world doesn't, and they need it. And we got it. And so don't forget, house of prayer for what? For all nations. All right. Third, praying together opens the door to everything else that we need Jesus to do in the church. Ask me. Believe me. I will give to you. Okay? So, somehow, some way, we need to, and by the way, I, I am so grateful for so many of you that I know you pray. You know, we have a, a Facebook group that is prayer requests and it's private just to people who are connected with our church and, and people put requests on there and people pray. I know that people who made comment, those who don't comment, I'm sure many pray. What a blessing that is, isn't it? I know for me, the times I've had certain things in my life with my father or other things, I can go there and say, would you guys pray with me? What a blessing. And so there's a lot of prayer that goes on. But I still think that there's something that we need to capture or maybe be captured by to become the house of prayer. And so something we said a number of years back, number of years back, we need to have a consciousness of it. And I, I say this because it's so easy for these things to sort of slip. <laughs> I mean, are you with me on that? The right... We, we, you know, we have good intentions, but those things can slip. So we have to, from time to time, say, no, 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 wait. We can't let this slip. And so something we said a number of years ago, I say to you again, this is what we need to say. You need to be able to say it. When the church meets, the church prays. When the church meets, the church prays. Doesn't mean we're going to always, all we're going to do is pray. That isn't it. But when the church meets, we pray. And it isn't a saying of prayer. It isn't saying prayers, right? It isn't checking off the list. We started with prayer. and It isn't like that. No, no, we're going to stop and say, Lord, you know, here we are. We belong to you. We need you. Maybe talk about what we're going to do a little bit. Ask for his directions. Ask for his enabling. And I would say that this is, we need to think this way when we're meeting, whether it's in our big worship service or whether it's in, if some of us get together for some other reason in the church, right? For me, to be, we need to pray. We need to be that house of prayer. You want that? Do you want this to be that way? Do you want to experience that? All right. Well, I think 
something that we can do that will jumpstart us. Because sometimes we just need that, right? We need a little tooth. Yeah. All right. So we're planning, and we're going to put together probably sometime mid to late April a thing we're going to call 40 Hours of Prayer. And we'll take advantage of the technology we have, and we can do, but we want to get to where at least one person, maybe more, together, whatever, but for 40 hours straight, from Friday night at 6 o'clock to Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, we are praying as a church. And we're going to pray for God's direction. How do we go forward and keep praying? What's that look like? What do you want us to do? And then for what we need and that we would be house of prayer for all nations. By the way, when we acknowledge the presence of God in his temple, what happens? He is glorified, isn't he? He can be seen. He can be known. And it seems to me when word gets out that Jesus is someplace, that Jesus is really someplace, it attracts attention. Okay, so I mean, it's just people can get to know Jesus through us. Uh, that's a different sermon. Better stop there. But it's important that we continue with the prayer that we have going, and then somehow we'll have that expand to be much more conscious awareness on our part that we are a house of prayer. What are some things we can do to do that, and then to continue forward with that? Father, we come to you and thank you that we can pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are real and alive and that just as much as if you were here with us and we could see you physically. In fact, the fact that you're not means that you can be with us, all of your people all over the world at the same time. A house of prayer for all nations. I pray, Father, that you will stir our hearts that you will capture our imaginations in a good way of what this could be as we become a church that prays more than ever. And that as we do, that we would sense your presence filling your temple and that your glory would be seen. And because of that, Lord, that you would enable us through us to reach many people for you, just as the church did when it was young. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.